This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. In this week's podcast, we'll offer a reflection on the story of the prodigal son, as told by Jesus in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. And the great writer Henry Nouwen says, unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. And this is uh, one of the most famous of all the parables Jesus told. This is an archetypal story for those that you, of you that love Carl Jung. I mean, this story has been told generation to generation, the, the prodigal son. And if you're unfamiliar with the term prodigal, it just is a fancy word for saying wasteful. To be prodigal means he wasted his inheritance, and that's why he's referred to as the prodigal son. Now, for us to hear the story in more the way the original hearers would have heard it, it's important for us to know one vital piece of information. In, when Jim read to us how the son says, split your inheritance, I want it now. In that time and place, literally what the hearers of the story would have heard is the younger son saying to his father, I just wish you would die. Get it over with. I want what's mine to get out of here. That's the hearing that the original audience would have had as Jesus would have shared this story. So this son is painted in about as unfavorable a light as you can imagine, saying to his father, I just wish you would die. Give me mine. I want out of here. And, he, and the father, which would have shocked the hearers just as much, accedes to this obscene request and, and gives this selfish brat all that he wants. And he takes off and squanders it as the story unfolds in riotous living in a far away place, far away from the home of his parent. And so that's the, the context of this story. And as I have read this week to prepare for my reflection on this story, I've been deeply touched by a wonderful book by Henry Nowen, who I've referenced to you numerous times. He was captivated by a painting, Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, uh, made of this story and wrote a whole book about his interaction with the story and with the painting. And I would highly recommend it. It's called The Return of the Prodigal. And as I've thought about what was going on in this story, here's what I would like to bring. There's three points I want to try to make. Uh, the first is the God concept of the two boys in this story is really flawed. And it had a huge impact on their ill behavior. And, and God concept is a phrase sociologists or psychologists will use to talk about what it is we think of God, when we think of the divine, what is it we think? Because they have determined, these 
sociologists and psychologists that whatever it is we think about God deeply influences and impacts how we live our lives and the way we relationally behave towards ourselves and each other. The, 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 the tentacles, if you will, of our God concept uh, reach into every relationship that we have. What we think about God, how we, whether we believe in a God or not, whatever it is we think of the transcendent or the divine, deeply influences almost every aspect of our behavior, the way we drive our car, the way we spend our money, the way we watch TV or surf the internet, uh, the way we treat our partners or our children or our family members. It touches everything. And I would suggest that the God concept of these two boys in this story are just awful. The concept of the prodigal, of the God figure, the father in this story, is just some sort of tyrant. Can you imagine what was in this child's mind to think of their parent in such a way as to walk up to their parent and say, I just wish you would die. I mean, what was in their mind? What could they be thinking? And he takes his money and goes off and spends it. And then later he has a, a change of God concept because I've learned God concepts are fluid. They're not static. They're not fixed. They change. And he has a change in his God concept from this evil tyrant that just says, I hate, that he said, I hate you, I just wish you would die, to he thinks of his father now as a benevolent rancher, sort of a John Dutton of the first century, you know. Well, at least if I go back to Yellowstone, I can at least live in the bunkhouse with Teeter and the boys, and, and it, that's going to be a lot better than being in the pig pen feeding pigs. And so his new God concept is one of a, a benevolent rancher or farmer. And that's flawed as well. Because the, the father in this story is neither of those. And then the older son has a God concept of some stingy, mean curmudgeon that would never let him have any fun. And that is flawed and wrong as well. And it's made the older son into a bitter, resentful human being. Someone who's always done the right thing, but never had any joy or satisfaction or love. Now, as I've worked through and thought about this parable this week, I can certainly identify with both boys in the story. And depending on the day, I flip back and forth between one and the other pretty quickly. I mean, I know what it is like to do shameful things and to say mean things and to hurt people's feelings and to feel embarrassed and to come crawling back on my knees and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. I, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I know what that feels like. I've been there. And I also have been the arrogant how dare you? Boy, somebody cuts me off in traffic when I'm trying to go somewhere. How dare you? Don't you know I'm a minister? I'm a man of God. I've got things to do. And I want to give them the middle finger salute. But I'm afraid they have a body cam or a car cam. They'll be all over the internet. Congregational pastor gives middle finger salute. You know, I don't need it. But I struggle with these things. 
They're bo both those boys live in my breast. I know what they feel like. And, and what I'm suggesting is their God concepts were just dead wrong. They didn't get it. And as I have read through the Bible and thought about this particular passage, which is a fabulous one, I am more convinced than ever that God shatters our faulty God concepts. God shatters, takes delight in destroying our creeds, our dogmas, our theologies, our silly notions and ideas of who God is like. See, what I've come to realize is our idea to try to understand God is really a power play. Because if we understand something, we can control it. We have power over it. And God delights in frustrating our attempts to control, to understand. I have learned afresh and anew after reading this book by Nowen and wrestling with this passage that God is not to be understood, simply to be embraced in the unknowingness of who God is. Thomas Merton, another one of my heroes, has famously said, our ideas of God tell us more about ourselves than they do of God. And so the first point I want to bring out is the faulty God concepts in this parable and the damage that they did, truncating the lives of these two young boys. These were life-limiting ideas, and, and they were sleepwalking through their lives because their whole idea of who God was 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 off. So their God concepts were wrong. Dallas Willard, another theologian, has written, the acid test for any theology is this. Is the God presented one that can be loved, heart, soul, mind, and strength? If not, get rid of it. <laughs> so the God concept is important. The second point I want to make, it, 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 it follows naturally as well, is this reflects on our self-concept. So whatever it is we think about God has a knock-on effect and direct influence over what I think of myself. It directly assaults or uh, builds upon my self-concept. In the book I've referenced by Henry Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal, Henry writes this, and I want to remind you, Henry is no spiritual knucklehead. He taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. He was one of the most sought-after spiritual writers and teachers of the 20th century. So this is somewhat of like an Einstein of spirituality, okay? And this is what he writes. He's a Catholic priest, and he writes this. For most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the Bible, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I've failed many times, but I always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder, Henry Nouwen says, whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love 
meaning. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by God? The question is not how am I to know God, but rather how am I to allow myself to be known by God? The question is not how do I love God, but rather how do I allow myself to be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. In all three parables, which Jesus tells in response to the question of why he eats with sinners, Jesus puts the emphasis always on God's initiative. God is the shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. God is the woman who lights the lamp, sweeps the house out, and searches everywhere for her lost coin until she finds it. And God is the father who watches and waits for his children, runs out to meet them, embraces them, pleads with them, and begs and urges them to come into his home. What a radical concept. In the parable, the father goes out to both sons to bring them in to the party. Now and says, my own self-concept, can I accept that I am worth looking for? Oh my God. I'm going to read that again. Can I accept that I am worth looking for? Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me. That's what this parable throws in our face and is profound. Now the first reading that Jim gave to us from the book of Kings, 1 Kings, is the story of the prophet Elijah, who, as Jim said accurately, after a huge bloodbath, I think 450 people were killed, Elijah runs off to a cave and is hiding because people have threatened to kill him. So here is the holy prophet of God in fear for his life hiding. And like the prodigal, God in the story comes to find a frightened child hiding in a cave. And God is not in the earthquake, God is not in the storm, God is not in the fire, but in a still small voice, actually in the Hebrew the voice of silence, which is an oxymoron, says, what are you doing here? God comes to find Elijah in the cave. God, in the story of the prodigal son, comes running out to greet the prodigal. The prodigal, if you remember in the reading Jim gave to us, has been rehearsing this speech all the way home. Oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm rotten. I'm rotten. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said what I did. Oh, I'm sorry. And he's, he's rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And when he gets in eyesight of the ranch, the father, the God figure, comes running out and will not even allow the kid to get the speech out of his mouth. Shuts the kid's mouth with kisses. Puts a robe on. And instantly calls for a party. There's no, well, you can be here for a few days. We'll see how long this will last. We'll see if there's really a change of behavior. We'll see if there's some evidence 
that you've really come to your sin. There's none of that. It's party time instantly. Instantly. And, and then the older son comes and won't even come into the party. So the father has to go out and try to get the older son to come in. Oh, the God figure in the story just wants to party. And he's got two party poopers for kids. And I've been amazed in my study of the parables this summer how many of the parables Jesus tells are God throwing parties. And how reluctant everybody is to come to God's party. In fact, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation that everybody's terrified of, the last image in the book is a party. It's the banquet of the Lamb. God is just looking for somebody who wants to have some fun. Let me love you. And so, as I've been reading this, the third point I want to get to is we've got to make some changes around this joint. We've got to have some more celebration around here. If this is going to be a real sanctuary, if we're going to call this a house of God, my goodness, we've got to learn how to party, folks. We've got to know how to live in such a way as to actually activate and believe that God loves us and not pretend, but to allow the power of that most incredible truth that I believe Jesus came, lived, and died to teach us becomes alive in us. God loves us. We're not worthy of it. We haven't merited it. There's nothing we could do to get it. God just does. For me, this parable is an exegesis of the very first beatitude Jesus taught in the, the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. Blessed, flourishing, radiant are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Theirs is the realm of God. The only way to get into God's party is to realize you don't deserve to be there. That's all you got to do. That's the ticket in. But if you think you've earned it, or oh, he was really, he was really smart to invite me. I'll lighten this. We're, we're like the older son. This is what this is saying to me. And so as I'm looking at the next year of our life together in community, I want you to hear it because I'm going to be saying it a lot. We got to do a lot more partying around this joint. We've got to have a lot more fun and a lot more celebration because we are loved. Henry Nouwen says that unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love for us.